It is good to be in the house of the Lord, and wherever you are, you are in the house of the Lord because God's Spirit is with you if you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, and we are together in spirit today as we look at God's Word, as we worship Him in spirit and in truth. Someone once said, and I quote, the end is near. You've heard that before. Really? The end is near. What does that mean? That can be a little frustrating, can't it? It's a, it's a vague statement. The end is coming soon. Soon in comparison to what? Near in relationship to what? Is it soon like lunch is coming soon? Is it near like the person next to me or my next door neighbor is near? What is near? What is soon? We want specifics, don't we? We want to know when. Why is that? Because it makes a difference. When I tell my four-year-old that Christmas is coming soon, well, that could mean to her that it's time to start figuring out what it is that she wants for Christmas. It could mean that she now wants to go into our shed and start pulling out Christmas decorations and all of, all of that stuff that goes with getting ready for Christmas. But if by soon, I mean that... Well, there's several more months until Christmas, and there are a couple different holidays that we got to get past before we actually get to Christmas. Well, then she may want to put ideas of Christmas out of her mind for a little bit and just do the things that she's going to do with her life. Focus on the moment at hand, right? And the same is true when it comes to the end of the world, isn't it? The same thing is true. And I think that's one of the reasons that people tend to be so preoccupied with trying to determine what Jesus meant by near. What does soon mean? When is this actually going to happen? We want to know so that we can determine whether or not we should be doing something about it, right? Should we be stockpiling supplies, getting ready for the end of the world? Maybe we should be digging in our backyard, building doomsday bunkers. Maybe we should invest in, in apocalyptic vehicles to help get us through that really trying time because it's coming soon. For some people, maybe it just means, hey, we need to go make the most of the time that we have here. It's time to party like there's no tomorrow, right? Maybe it means that we should... Um, start getting our affairs in order, or maybe mend a few broken relationships. We've kind of been putting that off for a while. We don't have much time left. Maybe we should set some things right. Maybe we should forgive some of the wrongs that have been done against us. Maybe we should start taking our faith a little bit more seriously. Maybe we should start selling off some property, maybe making some investments that are going to matter for eternity, or maybe telling some people about Jesus. Now, most people, I think, when it comes to this idea of the end, they want to delay the end as much as possible, and so they're desperately trying to stay healthy and they're trying to keep themselves from getting sick. Scientists are working hard trying to figure out how they can extend our lives, or at least their own lives, right? 
environmentalists, they're, they're tirelessly working to try to preserve this planet of ours. Our people over in the Defense Department, supposedly, they're working very, very hard to avoid some type of nuclear holocaust, right? Political activists, they're trying to fix government, create some type of utopian kingdom in which people can just live peaceably with each other, comfortably with one another. Because the way things are going, it just seems like chaos is on the horizon. The idea is do whatever is possible to preserve and to protect this life. After all, you only live once, right? Well, those who have placed their trust in Jesus they have reason to be a little bit more comfortable with the end. And we wouldn't go so far as to say that they have some type of death wish, but as their understanding of God's word grows, and as they mature in their faith, and they strengthen their confidence in what awaits them on the other side, well, their aversion to the thought of the end, that, that diminishes. And that's why when a worldwide pandemic hits, it leaves some people scratching their heads at the way some Christians are reacting to this. They're less likely to panic. Why aren't you panicking? The world is panicking. They're not panicking the way the rest of us are. Or maybe they're more apt to just roll with it or be more measured in the precautions that they take. Maybe more, be more concerned about gathering together for worship and being about the mission that God has called them to because in their minds, that's what really matters. And that's one of the reasons we sit beside the bedsides of those who maybe have a few days, a few hours left to live and they have this sense of peace and calm that is just astounding. There's a pastor, John Piper, who was out in Minneapolis, who said this. I'll never forget this. He said this about his church. He said, I love how our people die. It's an astounding statement, right? It's astounding. Why would you say something like that? And yet I completely understand it. Oh, to face death with the assurance that your sins have been forgiven. That because of Jesus, you can now be ready to meet your maker. That paradise is just maybe moments away. And that you will once and for all be delivered from being harmed by any of the sin of others that keeps impacting you. And what's more, you'll be delivered from the harm that your own sin does to them. What you do with Jesus, it impacts how you approach the end, doesn't it? Last week we read about how Jesus told his disciples that there would be signs that were leading up to the end, and he called them birth pains. There would be wars, there would be rumors of wars, there would be conflict between nations, there would be earthquakes, there would be famines. He said that Christians, they can expect to be dragged in before governors, before kings, beaten, uh, ridiculed, tried by councils, even betrayed and handed over to death by those closest to them, even family members, all for proclaiming the truth about Jesus, his news, the gospel to the world. In the passage we're about to read, 
we're going to be given even more detail on what those days leading up to the end are going to look like. Now, many people, as they look at this passage, it's Mark chapter 13, verses 14 to 23, when they look at this passage and they look at other passages in Scripture, they're, they're desperately trying to extract clues in an effort to try to figure out where we are on that end-of-the-world timeline. But while I think it's important to walk through life with our eyes open rather than have this kind of ignorance-is-bliss mentality, I think that's important. But at the same time, I think it's, it's very important that we don't allow the trees to blind us from the forest. In other words, we need to make sure that we do not become so engrossed in the task of determining whether or not we are close to the end or whether or not this is actually the end that we forget our place in God's eternal kingdom timeline and the mission that he's given us in it. Because if we do that, I fear that while we may or may not get the timing of the end right, most likely we won't. In fact, Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour. What I'm afraid of is that we won't be prepared to weather it as Christ would have us. If the end is near, don't you want to be prepared for it? And don't you want to go through it just as God wants as we walk through this passage, I'd like us to consider why Jesus shared it with us and what it should do for us as we march into the days ahead. Why does Jesus tell us about this time of tribulation? Let's look at Mark together, chapter 13. And as I said before, we are in verse 14. And if you are able, would you stand with me as we read from God's Holy, inspired, absolutely trustworthy and authoritative word. Because that's what we have in our hands, isn't it? Mark chapter 13, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, we noticed last week 
that the setting here is Jesus is he's talking with Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they are looking out at the temple. And this is Wednesday. It's Wednesday evening, when, uh, late afternoon, evening, before Jesus was going to be crucified in a few days. But we know that the things that he's saying here, Jesus intended to be known by more people than just Peter, James, John, and Andrew. How do we know that? He says, but when you see, when you see. So we, at first glance, we would think, okay, yeah, he's talking to those four guys. But then we realize by a parenthetic statement, there we go, uh, that Jesus makes right after this, we know that he's not just talking to them, he's talking to other people. He says, let the reader understand. Did you catch that? So, so we, can, we can extract from the text that what he's really doing here is he's talking to these guys, and while he is talking, one of them, at least one of them, is taking notes and writing it down. Why does that matter? That matters because it lets us know that the things he is about to say are not just for his disciples. They were for people beyond that group. The things that he speaks of here, it could take place in the time of these disciples. It could take place in their lifetime. It could take place after their lifetime. It could take place in our lifetime or even beyond our lifetime. Okay, so what of it? What are the things that are on the way? He says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be. We need to unpack that, right? What is he talking about? Abomination of desolation? What is this thing? But before we even go deep into that, we need to realize that there are some clues right here in the text that give us an idea of what this abomination of desolation is. First of all, we know that the abomination of desolation is a man. Jesus identifies him as he. So we know it's a male person. Okay, that gives us a little information. What else do we know? What other clues are there to help us to understand what's going on here? Well, if you are having trouble with your interpretation of Scripture, the first rule of Scripture interpretation is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. What does that mean? That means to look at other places in the Bible and see if those areas give light on the passage in question. Okay, so where should we look? Well, we're studying Mark, right? We're studying the gospel of Mark, and we know that there are other gospels. There are four gospels, but we know that there are three gospels that are called the synoptics. They are similar. They tell of many of the same accounts, but from different perspectives. And so the first place that we should go is, is some of these other books. This is an incredible thing, really, that we have this gift of multiple gospels here, multiple witness accounts that let us know what happened to Jesus or what happened during the time of Jesus, these things are actually true. They're verified by these separate books, these separate accounts. Let's look at Matthew's parallel here. It's Matthew 24, verse 15, and it records Jesus saying this, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, Standing in the holy place. Okay, so we stop right there. 
We're getting somewhere here, right? Mark said that this will be a man standing in a place that he should not stand. Matthew tells us where that place is. It's the holy place, he says. So he's a man who's desecrating the holy place. And we know what that holy place is. That's the temple, that innermost place, holy of holies in the temple. So we've got a man doing what should not be done in the temple. And what Matthew records Jesus saying here lets us in on another important clue. And that is where to find more information on what he's talking about. He says that the prophet Daniel has spoken about this guy. So we got to go back to Daniel. Okay, so in Daniel chapter 11, in verse 31, it says, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Sound familiar? He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So from Daniel, here we go. We know, and all the Jewish people who read this along with us and have, had, and have read this along with us before, were made aware of this idea that there was going to come a time when someone was going to come into the temple, that special place of worship that God had ordered must be kept holy. It must be kept pure. It was set apart, right? And that's what holy means. Set apart for worship of him and him alone. And this person and his crew were going to come in and they were going to set up something that should not be in that place. In fact, what was set up was an abomination. It was something that did not belong but even more than that, it was something that was absolutely detestable. It was immoral. It was even blasphemous. Instead of being something that worshipped God, pointed to him, it was a mockery and an insult to God. That word abomination, it's often used in the Old Testament, and, and most often it's used to describe pagan worship of idols. They were declaring things that were certainly not God, not even, not even nearly like God in the slightest respect, and they were worshiping these things as their God. And that, God's word declares, is an abomination. Now, what's really interesting here is that the Jewish people got a good taste of this all the way back in 168 B.C., that was the year when a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes had in, in, made an intentional and forceful effort to eradicate the Jewish religion. He had control of Israel from 175 to 165, and he gave himself the title Theos Epiphanes, which means manifest God. And he proceeded to desecrate the temple. He set up a statue of Zeus in the temple. And then he sacrificed a pig on the altar. And then he gathered all the priests and he forced them to eat the meat. And that was something that was absolutely forbidden. This was not a good guy. This was an awful guy. He butchered and enslaved thousands of people and made life in Israel absolutely horrific. That was 168 B.C., 
So it makes sense. When Peter, James, John, and Andrew were hearing Jesus talking about this abomination of desolation, they knew exactly what he was talking about. But wasn't Jesus talking about the future? He wasn't talking about an event from the past, right? It's clear from our text that he's talking about something that's going to be coming. But we have to ask ourselves, how far in the future is Jesus talking when he's here in Mark chapter 13, verses 14 to 23? How far into the future could it be that what was the future for Peter, James, John, and Andrew is actually the past for us? This is like a whole back to the future thing going on here. It's just like mind-boggling, right? If that's the case, if it's in the past for us, but the future for them, well, then that means that Mark 13 really isn't all that relevant to us here in 2021. It means that this is more of like a, a Bible history lesson that we're, we're doing here this morning. We looked last week at how Jesus' prediction about the destruction of the temple, that actually already happened back in A.D. 70. That would be after Peter, James, John, and Andrew were sitting there with him here on the Mount of Olives. That's about 40 years after that day. Rome, the Roman emperor Titus, he comes in and he lays waste to Jerusalem, lays waste to the temple. Could that be what Jesus is talking about here? I think yes, but I also think No. What happened back in 168 BC, all the, back, all the way back to Antiochus Epiphanes, well, that gave the disciples there with Jesus, it gave them a picture of what he was talking about. What Jesus is speaking of here in Mark chapter 13, no doubt was a warning for those Christians that were going to be living 40 years later when Jerusalem got sacked and the temple got leveled. So certainly it applied to them. And yet we have good reason to believe that it also points to events that have not even yet occurred here in 2021. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. Let's think back to 70 AD for a minute, though. Titus, he comes run, uh, knocking on the door of Jerusalem about 40 years after. Christians living in Jerusalem, they would have had Jesus' words here on the forefront of their minds. Jesus said, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That actually happened. The, the Christian historian Eusebius records Christians fleeing to the mountains when Titus came into town. Jesus said, let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. Well, Jewish ha uh, houses in that day, in that era, they had these rooftop terraces. And you would access that rooftop by a staircase that would run down the side of the house. And Jesus is saying, you know what? Do not go down the stairs and do not go into your house to gather anything because you don't have time. He says, you know, and particularly, it's going to be hard for women who have, or nursing infants or who, who are pregnant. Why? Because it's going to slow them down. He says, you know what, you better pray that it doesn't happen during winter. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Winters in Palestine, they aren't that bad. No big deal. It's not like 
Minnesota, right? Well, it's not. What Jesus is getting at here is even winter, as mild as it is there, you don't want that to happen because you don't want anything slowing you down. This is going to be bad. This is going to be really bad. You better run. You better run fast. Now, someone might say, wait a second here. I'm putting two, to two, to two together. I heard the sermon last week, or I read verse 13 of chapter 13 just recently, and doesn't Jesus say to endure to the end? And now, right here in 14 to 24, or 23, Jesus is talking about running. He says, you better get out. How does running and enduring, how do those things go hand in hand? And the answer is this. When Jesus was talking about enduring, he's talking about being faithful to God. He's talking about God's call to continue to preach the gospel to the nations, to the far ends of the earth, to all the peoples of the earth. That didn't mean that Christians were expected to shelter in place and defend a sacred building. No. Enduring the cost is or enduring to the end was not like defending the Alamo. That's not what was going on here. You can endure to the end. You can be faithful to God and his call on your life and leave the building to burn. In fact, that's not even the temple that God lives in anymore, is it? If you're a believer, if you've read God's word, you know that the temple is now right here. That God's Holy Spirit lives inside of each and every believer. So let God's judgment Fall where he determines, but endure, Christians. Endure to the end. Stay the course. Now, several months ago, I, I mentioned a quote by Pastor Timothy Keller. He's a pastor out in, in Manhattan. And he said this, If you are in a city or a community that is broken, where people are burned out or spiritually lost, he said, stay as long as you can. I think that's true. I think that's important. I think that's a good word for Christians. But we have to realize that that doesn't mean stay while the village is getting pillaged and people are being put to death. This is about enduring hardship. This is about having difficult neighbors. This is about enduring an undesirable environment for the sake of sharing Christ with those in that area that need it. But what Jesus is describing here, what's about to drop in Jerusalem, what he's talking about in Mark chapter 13, it's not about enduring discomfort. It's about, it's about life or death. Jesus and his listeners, they had a, a window into what he was talking about because of what happened back in 168 BC. In the near future, they would have another window into what Jesus is talking about when another desperate moment falls on Jerusalem. And yet, as bad as that was, we anticipate that his words actually point to events that have not yet occurred. Why do we do that? Why do we say that? Why are we looking out and saying, there's some other end, there's some other tribulation that is out on the horizon? We say that because of what he says here in verse 19 and 20. He says, in those days, 
there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. There's coming a time when the tribulation, the great suffering and trouble that comes into the world is unlike anything the world has ever seen before. And you might be thinking, well, you know what? I've actually seen some pretty terrible times. A lot of bad has happened in the world. What about the Holocaust of the 1940s? That was pretty bad. What about the plague? What about the worldwide flood that Genesis talks about, that Noah and his family were brought through? What about that? How do you get more catastrophic than a worldwide flood? It's going to be worse than that? That's what Jesus said. He said, never from the creation has anything like this occurred. Never will anything like this happen again. The prophet Zechariah wrote this. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. The abomination of desolation is going to bring about a holocaust like the world has never seen before, and only a third of the Jewish population is going to survive. And not only has that yet to come. There are other prophecies that the Bible mentions that are in connection with this time of tribulation that have not been fulfilled yet. Among them are the destruction of the nations that come against and attack Jerusalem. That's prophesied in Zechariah 12, 9. The, the visible return of Christ. We haven't seen that yet. Zechariah 14, 1 through 11. Mark 13, 24 to 27. We're going to get to that next week. Acts 1, 9 to 11. What about the judgment of Jesus upon the nations that's recorded in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, that sheep and the goats passage? What about the establishment of Jesus' earthly reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years? Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6. Okay, so you might say, so what happened back in 168 B.C. and what happened in A.D. 70, those were foreshadowings of something worse that was on the way. I still think we're on the verge of something really, really bad. I think maybe we're in the first stages of the end time. In fact, from where I stand, I think we may be already be experiencing the beginning of the Great Tribulation. I mean, taxes are rising. The government seems to be taking more and more control, taking away our freedoms, forcing us to do things that we don't want to do. Evil seems to be running rampant all over the place. People are flat out making a mockery of God. They're balking at this idea that we are made in God's image and they're worshiping themselves. Kind of like little antichrists running around all over the place. With each new day, it seems that Christians are increasingly hated in our world. It's exasperating, it's disconcerting. In fact, it's downright alarming. Well, I don't disagree with any of that. But I do think that before we wig out and start thinking that we are a persecuted people. Before we begin to think that we are a people in all of history to be pitied, I think we should consider 
the sufferings of those who have gone before us. We mentioned last week a, a Jewish historian, Josephus. In his fifth book of the War of the Jews, he describes what happened in A.D. 70. And according to him, 1.1 million people died from either starvation or at the end of a Roman sword. Listen to this. He writes, So all hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews, together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress. The upper rooms were full of women and children that were dying by famine, and the lanes of the city were full of the bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with the famine, and fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. As for burying them, those that were sick themselves were not able to do it. And those who were hardy and well were deterred from doing it by the great multitude of those dead bodies. And by the uncertainty, there was, there was how soon they should die themselves. For many died as they were burying others, and many went to their coffins before that fatal hour was come. Nor was there any lamentation made for under these calamities, nor were heard any mournful complaints, but the famine confounded all natural passions. For those who were just going to die looked upon those that were gone to their rest before them with dry eyes and open mouths, a deep silence also, and a kind of deadly night had seized upon the city." From there, the historian goes on to describe all sorts of other atrocities, including the cannibalism that people began to practice in their desperation. Are we nearing the end? Possibly. We do know that each and every day that we live, we are one step closer to that day. We know that. No doubt about that. But let's make sure we keep things in perspective. If we're panicking, if we're crying, woe is us, then what's going to happen when things get worse? If we're doing that now. In the few moments that we have left, let me leave you with a few reasons that I believe that Jesus sat up there on the Mount of Olives and had his disciples write down these things, these warnings for us of the last days. First of all, this. I believe Jesus tells Christians about the coming tribulation so that when it comes, they will have confidence that he is in control. By telling us what will happen even that it must happen, as he said in Mark 13, 7, he affirms in our minds that the world is not spinning out of control. As bad as it is, as ugly as it may get, it's still in his hands. He knows what he's doing. He's fully aware of what he is allowing to happen. And more importantly, he knows what the final outcome will be. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? 
as you see all kinds of signs of things that point to the fact that the end is nearing, are your hope and your confidence in God solidifying? Or are they falling apart? They should be solidifying. When Jesus says, be on your guard, I have told you all things beforehand, that should remind us that he knows a a thing or two about what's going to happen in the future. When a parent uh, tries to get their child ready to ride a bike, well, they tell them some things about the bike, and they tell them what their kid could expect, and they tell them if if you get wobbly and you're going to bail, bail on the grass over here. They're preparing them for that experience of bike riding. In the same way, Jesus telling us about the, the end, it reminds us he's got a handle on this. He knows this intimately. He's in control of it all. And so the first thing that I think we need to get out of this is that as Jesus tells us this thing, these things, it should remind us he's the one in control. Secondly, this, Jesus tells Christians about the coming tribulation so that they will know Beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he loves and cares for them through trial. When times get tough, it's tempting, isn't it? Tempting to, to, to throw your eyes head, heavenward, throw your arms heavenward, and say, God, what are you doing? How could you be allowing this to happen to me? Don't you see what's going on here? It's devastating. It's horrible. It's life-changing. I don't think I'll ever be the same. By letting his people in on the difficult things that are ahead. He not only lets them know that it's all part of his larger plan, but he also reminds us that he cares about us enough to prepare us for it. When a pop fly goes out, and it goes out into an area where people aren't expecting it, you yell, heads up, because you care about them. You don't want them to get hurt. When you have to brake suddenly on the freeway, you you say, hold on to everyone in your car because you want them to be ready. Protect themselves if they can. When a pilot uh, yells out over the intercom that brace for impact, he or she cares for their passengers, wants them to have at least the notion that something big is going to happen and you need to be ready. Get in the position Jesus sharing these things with us should send a message to us that he cares about us. He cares about us to know that they're going to happen. They must happen. He told us that, but he didn't have to tell us what was going to happen, did he? He didn't have to tell us. He could just let us experience history as it goes on. And he's got his plan. He's doing his thing. But you know, he's busy over here. Well, his people will get through it. No, no, no. He stops, and he sits, and they write for us what's going to happen because he cares for you. He cares for me. And not only does that allow us to recognize these events when they are going to happen, but it allows us, as they start to happen, to go, whoa, Jesus was right. This is incredible. You see what's going on in the world? What's your reaction to it? 
You see what's happening in our world. You see what's happening in the worldwide pandemic and leaders panicking and making all sorts of decisions all over the place. What is your response to that? Are you thinking, oh my goodness, things are out of control, sky is falling, the end of the world has come? Or do you go, wow, This sounds a little similar to what Jesus was predicting. We may be at the beginning of the end times. And if we are at the beginning of the end times, wow, doesn't this verify that Jesus, what he actually said is true? This is awesome. You can imagine what many of those Christians, just some 40 years or so after Jesus said this, and all of this was passed out to them, they see the leveling of Jerusalem. They see the leveling of the temple. They see people running to the mountains and they're thinking, Jesus told us about things like this. They didn't know whether or not that was the end of everything or not, but Jesus had prepared them for it. And I imagine that many of them went, wow. Jesus is who he said he was. You know, beyond that, all of this tells us that Jesus cares and loves for us through t- trial um, by it, verse, uh, what verse 20 says here. It says, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Doesn't that tell you that God cares for you? So he's bringing his judgment Tribulation is coming upon an unrepentant world, and they deserve it. But for the sake of his people, he's even limiting that tribulation because he cares for you. Friends, Jesus cares for you. You may be going through a devastating time in your life. You might be sick. You may have been giving a, given a diagnosis that it, 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 it can't be fixed. Maybe you're in the hospital even right now on a ventilator. Know that he cares for you. This is why we have his words. If you have one of these, or if you have his word on some type of device, that should say to you loud and clear that God cares for you. Thirdly, Jesus tells Christians about the coming tribulation so that they won't fall for false saviors. Look at verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, he says, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray. If possible, the elect, he says, Like we mentioned last week, there's no shortage of people standing up and saying, follow me. Give me your hand. In fact, put your hand in mine and put your money in my hand and put your children in my hand and everything else in my hand. Put your trust in me. I am the answer to all that you have been looking for. And we're living in a time where people are looking for a savior, aren't they? 
They may not be looking for the Savior, but they're looking for something to alleviate the stresses and the worries and the financial burdens and the health problems and all the things that are going on in their lives. And they're looking to all sorts of different things. They're looking to investment strategies and performance-enhancing, mind-altering, mood-manipulating drugs. They're looking to sensory fulfillment. They're looking to sex. They're looking to entertainment. They're looking to food. They're looking to adventure-seeking, thrill-seeking some are even you know, looking for purpose out there. They're looking for some type of savior. And Jesus wants us to know that as the end draws near, there are going to be more and more people who actually stand up and claim themselves to be a type of savior. Ultimately, there's going to be one man who stands up and sits down in the temple and proclaims himself to be a god. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Both Paul and Jesus want us to be aware that false saviors are going to come. And they want us to stand guard so that we don't fall for them. Have you identified some of those? Thankfully, those who know Christ don't need to worry about falling prey to their lies. Jesus told us in John 10, 5, uh, he said, A stranger they will not follow. He's talking about his people. But they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus' people, they know his voice so well that they can identify the voice of counterfeits. He went on in, in 10.27, John 10.27. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Is your trust in him? Has he become your shepherd? He knows you. You know his voice. Do you recognize that voice and are confident that you won't fall for false saviors out there? You see, if you haven't placed your trust in the one and only true Savior, the good shepherd who laid down his life for his people so that they might be forgiven their sin and securely placed in his forever family, let me encourage you to do that now. And say, Lord Jesus, I need you. You are the one and only Savior. I walked away from God. I deserve his punishment. I've sinned. But Jesus came and took my place on the cross, 
paid for every one of my sins so that I might stand before God clean and forgiven and right with him. And not only that, I know that Jesus rose from the dead. What he said was true. He is God and he is alive. And just as he rose, I know that I will rise. I will have eternal life, that eternal life that he promised. Have you done that? If you haven't done that yet, if you haven't placed your trust in Jesus, would you do that now? Jesus tells Christians about the coming tribulation so that they'll have confidence that he's in control, so that they'll know that he loves and cares for them through trial, so that they won't fall for these false saviors. Finally, one last thing. Jesus tells Christians about the coming tribulation so that they will faithfully endure to the end. You know, throughout history, God's people have endured monumental times of trouble. They've marched towards the ends. The end, their eyes have been on the prize. They've set their sights on eternity with their maker, their savior, the, the radiant, beautiful, all-satisfying king of kings and lord of lords, and they are unmoved in their resolve. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Their song for the ages, sung in unison with all of the saints that have gone before them, remains the same. It is well with my soul. Jesus told them all these things beforehand so that they would be prepared, so that they would be on guard, so that they would faithfully march forward as his people through his timeline into his glorious eternity. I think the question for us is not when do we think that's going to happen, but the question is, are we ready for it when it comes? Are we making ourselves ready even now? Let's not be satisfied with waiting for the right signal to start living as God's people. Let's hoist the colors. Let's storm the ramparts. Let's march forward for Christ's kingdom, for his glory, and for the good of his people. Let's take the gospel to the ends of the earth and into our homes. Let's share the love of Jesus like there's no tomorrow. Let's refuse to store up treasure where moth and rust destroy. Let's count it an honor to serve like our Savior and be hated by all for his name's sake. And let's keep our eyes on him and never, ever, ever look back. Amen? Father, we are are yours. We are your people, called by your name. We have a good shepherd. His name is Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for what he has revealed to us in Mark chapter 13. Lord, we anticipate that things will get difficult, maybe even excruciating, 
And yet we know, Lord, that by telling us these things, Jesus has given us a reason to hope. He's given us confidence that you are in control, that you do love us, that we do need to be on our guard and watch out for all kinds of lies that come buffeting uh, against us, Lord. And we know that we can endure because we are now the temple of the living God who dwells within us and empowers us to persevere. We thank you, Lord, for loving us. We entrust ourselves, our families, our souls to you. And we look forward to the day where we will meet you face to face in glory. We pray these things in the mighty and strong and living name of Jesus. Amen.